Hello and welcome to the Medici Podcast, episode 42, The Orphan. If you'd like to see images, maps, bibliographies, and more, go to MedicePodcast.com. And if you like the show, feel free to share it with a history lover in your life. Or if you have the means, you can give a one-time donation on MedicePodcast.com or support me on Patreon. The last we saw Pope Leo X, he had just betrayed his mentor and predecessor, Pope Julius, by ousting Julius's nephew, Francesco Maria, from the Duchy of Urbino, and giving the duchy instead to Leo's own nephew, Lorenzo. But a few modern historians and a couple of Leo's contemporaries would have agreed that he also betrayed Julius by not doing enough to, as Julius himself would have said, drive the barbarians out of Italy. But honestly, while taking Urbino from its rightful duke was an undisputable blunder, I don't think Leo can really be blamed for the rest of his foreign policy. He was stuck between a French rock and a Habsburg hard place. Instead of being the avenger of Italian freedom that Julius was, Pope Leo took on the role of a fair-weather ally to King Francois of France. He suggested that he would recognize Francois or another French candidate as King of Naples, but only if the French actually conquered the kingdom, a project to which Leo would only give lukewarm moral support. When the Italian wars flared up again and it seemed like King Francois might lose Milan to an invasion by the Holy Roman Empire, Pope Leo cautiously put out feelers to Emperor Maximilian, at the same time he sent excuses to Francois, explaining why he didn't send papal soldiers to reinforce the French defenders of Milan. Francois managed to hold on to Milan in the end, at least for the time being. But another time Leo had started talks to finally follow in Julius's footsteps by forming a new Holy League this time against France with Spain and England. The idea fell flat once Leo found out that the great European powers had made their own arrangements behind his back. Still, King Francois was savvy enough to recognize that the Pope was playing the major powers against each other and didn't have his best interests at heart. The king complained that because his arrangements with the Pope never seemed to work out when he was actually being attacked by his enemies, He'd have to negotiate a new separate treaty with the Pope that would work in times of peace. But I think even Francois would have admitted why Leo treated him this way. Italy was surrounded by the three major powers of Western Europe, Spain, France, and the Holy Roman Empire, all of whom had a political claim and an interest in Italian territory. Any other great powers that might actually stand a chance against 
at least one of them in a war like England or Poland were too far away and had no stake in whatever happened in Italy. So Leo's best option was to be a reluctant and opportunistic friend and hope that one day an opportunity would present itself to reassert the independence of Milan or Naples. Things were even worse closer to home. Leo had tried to keep Florence happy by appointing prominent Tuscans to positions at the papal court and to any vacant cardinal seats, but this had a cost in stoking resentment among other members of the College of Cardinals. And by striking down Francesco Maria della Rovere, Leo had turned a family with deep roots in the church and the Roman aristocracy from being his supporters to his bitter enemies. This all came to a head when Leo managed to alienate another former ally, Cardinal Alfonso Petrucci, from the city of Siena. He had played a role in convincing Julius II to support the Medici restoration in Florence and had backed Leo's election. Unfortunately, his brother Borghese Petrucci had become the ruler of the Republic of Siena, or to use the Sienese's own term, the primus of the Republic. As you might remember from earlier episodes, for centuries Siena had been one of Florence's major political and economic rivals. With a Medici pope who was on good terms with the King of France, the leaders of the Republic rightfully feared that sooner or later they would end up under Florentine dominion, just like neighboring Pisa. So Borghese Petrucci tried to set up an alliance between Siena and the French king's then biggest rival, Charles of Spain. This was an intolerable threat to Florence itself, so Leo backed a coup that deposed Borghese and put another, more pro-Florentine member of the Petrucci family, Raffaello, into power. This was the final straw for Cardinal Alfonso, who found several of his fellow cardinals were receptive to his complaints about their boss. The one cardinal who was most openly enthusiastic about Alfonso's heel turn on Leo was the elderly Cardinal Raffaele Riario. He was a great-nephew of Lorenzo the Magnificent's nemesis, Pope Sixtus IV, and had made a name for himself as one of the great artistic patrons of Rome, in addition to being the most wealthy representative of the papal court outside the pope himself. It was Riadio, and not any of the Medici, who first lured Michelangelo to Rome. Although Riadio was related to Pope Julius, the two just didn't get along, especially because Riadio had been an ally of the Borgias during Pope Alexander's reign, although Julius did appoint Riadio as his vice-chancellor. But Leo never forgave or forgot that Riadio had been his biggest rival in his own papal election, and far worse, he had been rightly or wrongly implicated in the Pazzi conspiracy that claimed the life of Leo's uncle Giuliano. And to top it all off, Cardinal Riadio was also another relative of Duke Francesco Maria of Urbino. The anti-Leo cabal also came to include other cardinals, namely Adriano of Cornetto, Bendanello, Sali, and finally Leo's old rival, Francesco Saradini. These men were at least fully aware of what Petrucci and Riadio would be up to, if not genuinely involved. 
Alfonso Petrucci happened to know a shady surgeon in Rome named Gian Battista da Vercelli. Apparently, while listening to Alfonso go on yet another rant about his boss, Gian Battista suddenly volunteered to help him by poisoning the Pope. It's not clear at all why Gian Battista would not only agree to, but initiate such a dangerous plan. The most logical explanation is that once all was said and done, Alfonso Petrucci tried to put as much blame on the helpless surgeon as possible. But I also wonder if John Batista was hoping to string his wealthy new patron along, but without ever actually sticking his neck out to try to kill the Pope. Or perhaps he just really was that desperate for a lucrative payday. In any case, Petrucci and Riadio decided to take advantage of the fact that the Pope's personal physician had taken ill and try to convince Leo to hire John Batista to treat that anal fistula that kept tormenting Leo. The plan was, once John Batista earned Leo's trust, he would kill the Pope after an operation, using band-aids coated with poison. However, a servant of one of the cardinals leaked the plot, either accidentally or deliberately. Acting with pure Medici gal, Leo played along and went so far as to ask Petrucci to come to the Vatican and speak with him personally. But this was just a pretext to give his enemies enough rope to hang themselves. And hang themselves they did. In June of 1517, John Battista and Mark Antonio Nino, Petrucci's secretary, were arrested and interrogated under torture. By the time the College of Cardinals had gathered for a prearranged meeting, Leo had all the evidence he needed. With genuine anger, he confronted the Cardinals, telling them that unless all the guilty individuals came forward, he would have the whole lot of them dragged off in chains. This was probably a show, since Leo already had a good idea of who knew of the plot but said nothing. Still, Leo needed to at least be able to safely detain Cardinal Riario, who, as the richest and most politically well-connected of the Cardinals, was also the most dangerous. Even in his rage and paranoia, Leo didn't dare have Cardinal Riario treated too badly. He was given closely watched but comfortable accommodations in the Vatican itself, while the other guilty Cardinals were sent to dungeons in the imposing fortress of the Castel Sant'Angelo, where they had to deal with a terrible stench and weren't given food, water, or basic comforts. Leo felt particularly vengeful toward Petrucci, who was clearly the leader of the plot, and Sally, a cardinal whose career Leo had personally helped along. Yet Sally still apparently gave the conspiracy his blessing for no reason other than raw, ruthless ambition. Leo ordered that they at least be threatened with torture, and Sally was said to have shrieked at just the sight of the rack. Leo soon called another meeting of the cardinals to discuss legal proceedings. The Pope seemed genuinely distressed and broke out in tears at one point, vowing that he would pardon all the guilty cardinals. But after he had attended Mass, he had dramatically changed his mind, or somebody had convinced him that such an act of forgiveness while admirably Christ-like, would only invite further attempts on his life. 
Instead, Leo decided that all the cardinals would be tried in the secular courts, rather than by the church itself. Even so, as was usually the case, when it came time for punishments to be handed out, the people outside the elite got the worst of it. When official proceedings against the guilty concluded, John Batista, Mark Antonio Nino, and another underling of Cardinal Alfonso were torn apart using red-hot pincers, and then publicly hung from gibbets off the bridge of Sant'Angelo. Alfonso Petrucci was either quietly strangled or beheaded in his cell, perhaps as a favor to spare the Petrucci family the disgrace of a public execution. The other cardinals were much luckier, even though they were all heavily fined and stripped of their rank. Although his betrayal seems to have personally stung Leo the most, Cardinal Sowley was, after a period of house arrest, fully reinstated that December. He did die a year later, which provoked rumors that he was poisoned in revenge, but that is the sort of story that would spread about anyone in a similar situation. Francesco Sardini, Adriano of Cornetto, and Raffaele Riario were allowed to leave Rome and did not return until after Leo's death. Leo also confiscated some of the disgraced cardinal's properties in Rome, including the palace cardinal Riario spent lavishly using money he won in gambling. Leo had it turned into office space for the papal chancellery, and to this day the building is known as the Palace of the Chancellery, one of the city's most famous examples of original Renaissance architecture. Because of how Leo raked in this and other goodies from the cardinals, the rumor spread that he made up the entire conspiracy as an excuse to eliminate his enemies in the papal court and restock the papal treasury with their money and property. Of course, there's no real evidence of this, but it didn't help Leo's public image that he wasted no time in replacing the exiled cardinals with men who were either his nephews or those with ties to foreign courts, namely Afonso, the son of King Manuel of Portugal, Louis de Bourbon, the French king's cousin, and Adrian of Utrecht, Charles of Spain's former Dutch tutor. At the same time, things seemed to be doing better on the family front, at least at first. True, Leo's nephew Lorenzo had turned out to be a total disappointment. He had no political acumen and had completely alienated the people of Florence. His personality was that of a stereotypical haughty aristocrat, treating even his accomplished cousin, Cardinal Giulio, with disdain just because he was born out of wedlock. Nor was Lorenzo that good at warfare, nor was Lorenzo that good at warfare, even though he loved to show off his athletic prowess doing military exercises that were so reckless his mother and Leo himself tried to convince him to stop. During the campaign in Urbino, against the advice of his own officers, he insisted on investigating the spot before the walls of a fortress that his army was besieging, where several of his soldiers had gotten killed operating the artillery, and, surprise, he was shot too. Speaking of Urbino, even though his uncle had spent money and lives securing the duchy for him at his own request, he rarely spent time there, and did not put much effort into governing it. Instead, he spent most of his time in Florence, attending alcohol-soaked banquets or carousing with women, 
But at least Leo could take some comfort in the fact that his wayward nephew was finally to be wed. Originally, Leo wanted Lorenzo to marry a woman from the Soderini family, as a gesture to make peace with the Medici's biggest rivals in Florence. However, Lorenzo's mother, Alfonsina, stepped in and instead pushed for a marriage between Lorenzo and Madeleine de la Tour d'Auvergne, a noble heiress from southern France and a distant cousin of King Francois. Francois signed off on the match, hoping to improve his ties with the papacy for the sake of his Italian ambitions. It was a great step forward, since it was the first match between a Medici and a member of the wider world of European royalty and high nobility. Leo was clearly anxious to prove that his family was good enough to marry into the French aristocracy. When Lorenzo arrived in the Loire Valley for the marriage on June 13, 1517, and of course to meet his bride in person for the first time, he led a procession that impressed even King Francois with 300,000 ducats worth of gifts to the king, including 36 richly adorned horses and a matrimonial bed for the couple, constructed out of tortoiseshell and inlaid with gems and mother-of-pearl. It was a ceremony for the books, but one of the guests, the Seigneur de Florange, left behind in his memoirs the remark that Lorenzo's young bride was trop plus belle que le marier, much more beautiful than the groom. Whether this referred to Lorenzo's libertine lifestyle, the fact that he was already showing the symptoms of tuberculosis and possibly syphilis, or both is unclear. In any case, Lorenzo was dead a little less than a year after his marriage. He was only 26 years old. Lorenzo was likely killed by tuberculosis, the same disease that claimed his uncle Giuliano. If he did have syphilis as well, as some modern historians suspect, then no doubt that also contributed to his death. Whatever it was, he shared his sickness with his poor wife, who joined her husband over a month later. But before they died, they did leave behind an orphan, a daughter named Caterina. And to Lorenzo's credit, it was said he and Madeline were as delighted with the girl's birth as if she had been born a boy. Nonetheless, in cold, dynastic terms, Lorenzo dying before he could father a son was a disaster by the standards of the time. Pope Leo and the infant Caterina were the only legitimate descendants of Cosimo de' Medici left. As for the living Medici born out of wedlock, there was Cardinal Giulio, Giuliano's little son Ippolito, and a boy named Alessandro, about whom we will hear much more later. For now, Leo had the infant Caterina brought to Rome, where he doted on the baby like any patriarch, pope or not. Still, true to his character, he could not help but make a bitter, educated reference. Quoting Homer's Iliad, he remarked sadly, She brings all the catastrophes of Hellas with her presence. Sadly, this would not be the last time in her life that death would follow Katerina. She was called Ducasina, the Little Duchess, 
and named the rightful Duchess of Urbino, even though Leo also issued orders to begin administratively annexing Urbino to the Papal States. No one at the time could have guessed that Caterina had a grander and more dangerous future in store than just being a figurehead duchess for the Pope. In the year 1518, Leo's thoughts about the future were likely not optimistic for his grandniece or for himself in Italy. For the past several years, news had been trickling into Rome about the reigning sultan of the Ottoman Empire, Selim. In 1514, he crushed one of the few neighboring powers that could still stand its own against Ottoman might, the Safavid Empire of Persia, expanding the borders of the Ottoman Empire into Armenia and Mesopotamia. By 1517, Selim had also completely beaten the Mamluk Sultanate. This time, Selim claimed all of its territory, adding Syria, Palestine, Egypt, and northwestern Arabia to his empire. Compared to the Ottomans, even the French and Charles of Spain looked like mere nuisances. Leo threatened all the governments of Europe with excommunication if they did not stop fighting each other, and tried rallying the powers of Europe to put together the greatest army and navy Europe had ever seen for a crusade that would finally drive the Ottomans out of Eastern Europe if not destroy their empire completely. All during this turbulent and tragic time, Leo kept getting reports about another problem, one that very likely didn't occupy his mind nearly as much as his nephew Lorenzo's failings or the Ottoman menace. A monk, he served as a university lecturer in theology at the town of Wittenberg in northeast Germany, was stirring up some kind of controversy or another. A few loud voices in the church even accused him of heresy. According to one source, when hearing about the monk, Leo joked that he was just a drunken German who will change his tune when he is sober. Accordingly, Leo just handed the matter over to Sylvester Mazzolini, a Dominican theologian who had dealt with heresy in the past. After that, Leo turned his attention to far more important matters. Join us next time when we finally get around to meeting the drunken German. And say goodbye to Pope Leo. Buona notte.